0: grant us, loving Father, the grace and help of your Holy Spirit, that we may hear and receive the word which you speak to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I was always taught to pray before embarking on a sermon, but lately I've become more wary of doing so, having heard a story about a vicar's daughter, who noticed that this was something her father always did. Every time he was about to preach, he would pause to pray. So one day she asked her mother about it. Mummy, why does Daddy always do a prayer before he does a sermon? Well, dear, said the mother, it's because he's asking God to help him as he preaches. The little girl thought about this for a moment or two. And then said, but mummy, then why doesn't God help daddy? (laughs) In a few minutes' time, we will come to the rite of consecration at which our sister Jackie will make vows to live a life consecrated to God in singleness and celibacy in order to give herself more fully to the service and mission of God and to prayer. But before that, I want to reflect, if I may, on the words we heard from our epistle reading a few moments ago, words from the letter of St. Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 3. I'm intending to refer quite closely to the text of the Bible passage, so you might find it quite helpful to have it open on page 6 of your service booklet. Some of you may have heard me say before that although Holy Scripture is of course always more than carefully crafted literature, it is seldom less than that. I'll say it again, although Holy Scripture is of course always more, much more than carefully crafted literature, it is seldom less than that. And these verses from Ephesians chapter 3 are a beautiful example. Uh, The passage is almost poetic. The eight verses, as you can see from the way they've been printed in the service booklet, form four symmetrical sections. Think of it as a big sandwich, bread filling, filling, bread. In the middle of the reading, there is a double prayer, two paragraphs in verses 16 and 17 and verses 18 and 19. Two stanzas each, two verses long, each beginning, I pray that... And those two middle sections are topped and tailed by an introduction and a conclusion. The introduction in verses 14 and 15 invite us to picture the apostle on his knees praying for the readers of the epistle. And the conclusion in verses 20 and 21 is a classic doxology, as it's called, a resounding declaration of, of glory to God. It's a passage which I want to suggest speaks very directly and, as I say, beautifully to Jackie as she makes her life vows today, but also to each and every one of us here. Certainly to those of us who are seeking to live day by day as faithful and followers, faithful and fruitful followers of the Lord Jesus. As happens quite often, I find, this passage is perfect for this occasion, for Jackie and the step she's about to take for us as we witness it and as we reflect on our own calling before God. This text is thoroughly appropriate even though this text was not chosen with this occasion particularly in mind. This text is simply the appointed epistle for the ninth Sunday after Trinity. I want to home in, first of all, on the content of that double prayer in the central two paragraphs, the heart of the reading, the meat, as it were, in this sandwich, because here we find a prayer for Jackie and for each one of us. But then I want to point out two rather wonderful progressions, which are to be found in the passage as a whole, Two progressions which are a reminder that even a person who is about to take a vow to a life of consecrated singleness is not in fact receiving a call to be alone, but a call to serve God in community. I'll explain what I mean by that at the end. So first of all, what is it that the Apostle prays for his readers in this passage? And what might it say to Jackie and to every other follower of the Lord Jesus today? Well, the first thing that strikes me about it is that it is not a prayer for anything that the Apostle hopes his readers will do. It's rather a prayer for what he hopes they will be. That the climax of this double prayer comes at the end of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is not a modest prayer. Paul is not praying that his readers will find a convenient place to park their car when they gather for worship week by week. He's not praying that they will be empowered for any particular work. He's not praying that they will evangelize boldly, pray devoutly, care for the needy with compassion and generosity. He prays that they will be filled with all the fullness of God. And of course, that's a paradox and Paul knows it all too well. How can any human being, even Christ himself, let alone ordinary mortals like you and me, be filled with all the fullness of God? Well, isn't it interesting that Paul will not allow any logical, rational stumbling block, any reservation there might be about the extent to which such a prayer could ever truly be answered? Isn't it interesting that Paul does not allow any such rational stumbling block to prevent him from praying that prayer all the same? And his prayer for his readers is our prayer for you this morning, Jackie, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And it can be our prayer for one another too, that we might each be filled with all the fullness of God. Why would we settle for anything less than that? And however paradoxical paradoxical that prayer might be, It seems to me that in the previous few verses, from verses 16 to 18, Paul provides us with two clues about how this infilling with the fullness of God might indeed happen in us. And it should not surprise us to discover that the clue is love, or rather both clues are love. The first thing that Paul prays for his readers is that they will be rooted and grounded in In love, rooted like a plant where the real vitality is invisible below the surface of the soil, grounded like a building where the real foundation is invisible below the surface of the land. So he prays that each of us may be strengthened in our inner being, the invisible bit, below the surface with power through the Spirit so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith as we are rooted and grounded in love. That's our prayer for you today, Jackie, that you will be rooted and grounded in love. It's our prayer for one another, that we may each be rooted and grounded in love. Love is to be the foundation, love the taproot of every Christian. There is nothing more basic to our life and growth. And if the first clue is love, if the thing that Paul prays is that we will be rooted and grounded in love, then the second clue is also love. The thing that Paul prays we will know is love. Look at verse 18. I pray that you may have power to comprehend, to grasp the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Again, it's a paradox. As Paul is well aware, how can you know something which surpasses knowledge? How can you comprehend the incomprehensible height and depth and length and breadth of Christ's love? Well, perhaps you can't. But perhaps as you ponder it and meditate upon it and long to grasp it, you may find yourself grasped by it. And that's our prayer for you, Jackie, that you will know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Our prayer for one another that we might all do so. But there's one more thing about these verses which I want to draw to your attention before I finish. Our prayer for you, Jackie, is indeed that you will be filled with all the fullness of God, that you will be rooted and grounded in love, that you will know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. But even for you, as you make your vow to a single consecrated life, maybe especially for you, it's important to note that you're not called to be solitary. You're not called to serve God alone. Actually, Paul makes that explicit. And the eagle-eyed among you will have noticed that a few moments ago, I omitted a few words of the biblical text from verse 18 What Paul prays for his readers is in fact not just that they will have the power to grasp the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge but that they will do so with all the saints. And most of you will be aware, I know, that when Paul says, with all the saints, he simply means, with all your fellow Christians, with all those who have been baptised into Christ. In other words, he doesn't mean to refer only to the great martyrs and exemplars of the church. He means that if we are going to attempt the impossible, which is to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, we are at least going to have to do it in company with one another. Even those who are called to a single consecrated life are called to love and to know Christ's love in the company of Christ's people. And that brings me finally to what at the outset I called two wonderful progressions through these verses which drive that point home. The first is a double progression relating to the persons of the Trinity. These verses assume, if I dare put it like this that even God's own experience is to know love in community. There is no solitary experience of love, even in the Godhead. So the passage moves in a subtly Trinitarian way, as you will see, from a reference to the Father in verse 14, to the Spirit in verse 16, to Christ in verses 17 and 18. So that when at the end of that verse Paul refers to the fullness of God, we know he means the fullness of God, Father, Spirit, and Son in love. And the same progression is there, I think, in the last two verses, in that classic doxology, that cry of glory to God. The movement is again from the Father, at least... I assume that who is, that's who is meant by the opening words to him. Then to the Spirit, at least I assume that's who is meant by the reference to the power at work within us. And then thirdly and plainly to Christ Jesus. Father, Spirit, Son. The sequence is the same. Repeated from the earlier verses. Love for Paul is always a shared love. Love in community, even for God. And that, I suspect, is why there is a second wonderful progression in these verses to do with the pronouns that Paul uses. The first pronoun, right at the start of the reading, is I. I bow the knee, he says. But the I moves to you, which in these verses is consistently a you plural, by the way, So the I in verse 16 introduces a you and a your and a your and a you. And the I in verse 18 introduces a you and a you. But look how the reading ends in verse 20 with an us and a we. I turns to you, turns to we. That's how it is in the company of Christ's people it's interesting that there are no third-person pronouns in this passage. There is no him, no her, no them. No one is outside this circle of love, only I and you and we. The height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge is only ever known by persons in community, even among those who are called to a single consecrated life. In the name of the Father, and of the Spirit, and of the Son. Amen.